from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome to Work and Life. So glad you're here to listen in on the conversation we have every week exploring all those things related to work and the rest of your life, your family, your community, our society, and your private self, your mind, body, and spirit. I am your host, Stu Friedman. I'm the founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project, our leadership program here at the Wharton School, and I run a management consulting, coaching, and training company. It's called Total Leadership. Go to totalleadership.org to find out about our services, uh, all kinds of free resources, book chapters, articles, videos, assessment tools, uh, to learn what it is that we do at Total Leadership to help people find greater harmony and improve performance in all the different parts of life. New episodes of our shows premiere Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern here on SiriusXM channel 132, and you can follow us on Twitter at SXM Business. I'm at, at Stu Friedman. We're going to be talking today about diversity, equity, and inclusion, as we have been doing a lot these last few months, perhaps with a bit more focus today on the, the business side and what employers can do to make a difference in advancing the cause of progress in our society, in our companies, uh, for our communities. My guest has over 20 years experience teaching courses and workshops all over the world on leadership, talent management, and diversity, and her research and teaching are informed by her background in finance. She was a financial analyst and a small business development consultant prior to obtaining her doctorate in organization studies. Uh, she's also served as an expert witness in employment discrimination lawsuits, and she provides professional advice and guidance for uh, for profit and non-for-profit organizations. I am delighted to welcome Quinetta Robertson, who is the John A. Hanna Distinguished Professor of Management and Psychology at Michigan State University. Unfortunately, that's not the University of Michigan, where I got my PhD. It's a different Michigan University. Gwinnett is probably going to say the better one. Oh, this is just folly, this, this silly rivalry. But maybe we won't get into that. Prior to her current position, she was an endowed chair at Villanova University, just up the street here from uh, where we are uh, in suburban Philadelphia. And before that, she was a tenured professor at Cornell University. Quinetta, welcome to Work in Life. Thank you. It's, it's a pleasure to, to be here. It's great to have you here. Let me, let me tell folks a little bit more about you before we jump into the conversation. Okay. Um, professor Robertson is uh, a PhD in organizational behavior from the University of Maryland. Her research interests focus on developing organizational capability and enhancing effectiveness through the strategic management of people, particularly diverse work teams, which we're going to get into. Uh, she did a wonderful TED Talk called The Science of Inclusion, which you should check out. Uh, and she's been a visiting scholar at universities on every continent except Antarctica. Antarctica. Please forgive that mispronunciation. And she is currently, this is a big deal, 
president of the Academy of Management, which uh, is an organization I've belonged to for 40 years. So we're going to we're going to get into what the and that's that's the group that is all the scholars of management around the world. So so I'm sure she's got some interesting ideas about where that our field is going now. Uh, Quinetta, again, thank you so much for being here. Let's let's start, though, with your work on diversity, equity and inclusion. Um, and let's just start with how you first define the meaning of those three terms, which are often bundled as one term or one acronym, DEI. How do you understand what those three words mean and why they're important? I, I do think that they are bundled often um, and I separate them. They have very distinct meanings for me. Diversity is differences. So any difference between people, which could be, you know, what we know from employment law, which is race and gender and um, sexual orientation and veteran status, but it can also be um, something as simple as I'll say left-handed versus right-handed. And some people will say, oh, no, no, that dilutes the definition. But the reason I note that is because in some classrooms, you know, if, that have individual desks. Um, my poor left-handed students have to navigate the right-handed desks and um, it becomes a meaningful dimension of diversity. So differences. The inclusion piece, I'm going to jump over the E and come back to it. Mm-hmm. The E is, uh, excuse me, the I is everyone having the ability to fully and meaningfully contribute to an organization. So not just saying diversity for the sake of putting people together and now go and make magic, but how do we give people, how do we create a culture and environment where people feel valued, they feel like they belong, they feel like they are meaningful involved in the work of the organization. That's inclusion. That's inclusion. But Equity is a new addition, and that's why I left it, because uh, we used to hear D&I, and now we hear equity and inclusion. Yes, we do. Um, and it's, for me, um, more about people having the opportunity to have the same um, outcomes in or access to outcomes in organizations and also the same opportunities to contribute to an organization. So. Yeah. Access. It's access. In in a Um, sense of being uh, a fair system of opportunity. Is that accurate? Yes, because sometimes we we can't treat people that they're like they're all the same because we're not all the same. Hmm. We have different, you know, experiences and backgrounds. We have different starting points. So it's thinking about how does everyone have an ability to be competitive, to contribute. And so that's access to information, resources, networks, all of those kinds of things. So how does that differ then from inclusion? What's the what's the distinguishing feature of those two terms just to parse it out? Yeah, no, that's a great question. For me, I think, because I actually, in my research, I studied fairness first before I studied diversity. Um, I came into my PhD program wanting to study diversity, and my faculty members were like, nah, that's not really interesting. (laughs) Um, Because it was barely new. That was the 90s, and a lot of people weren't talking about diversity at that time. And so um, I st- equity at the time was about people's outputs to inputs. So do you get out what you put in? 
Mm-hmm. Um, but the reason I don't describe it that way is because some people hear meritocracy that, you know, um, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Everyone should have a, you know, you get out what you put into it. But I think that that um, assumes, again, we all have the same starting point. So the access is about having everyone having like that same starting point so that from there, people's contributions to the work then determine, you know, promotion, pay, et cetera. But we've got to make sure that systems are equal, systems are free from bias. And that's the way I see equity. I see it as more systemic, where I see inclusion as this more cultural kind of um, factor or how we build that into organizations. Could you give an example of what uh, what it would mean to be included in a way that's different from having a fair, you know, structure of opportunity? Yeah. So inclusion is about um, people feeling like there's an experience of inclusion, right? Do I feel that my differences or what I bring to the table are valued? And do I feel that I belong? And a lot of that is driven by the leader, by others in the organization. You know, we know that it's not completely just driven by practices. Um, I would say fair, equitable practices would say, you know, if we think of something like um, pay, for example, mm-hmm. right? That um, pay for, for, for pay equity, that if you're doing similar work, you should get similar pay. But um, in this current environment, for example, there are Black employees who are being asked to head diversity initiatives, to head, to create um, affinity groups or employee resource groups, and to head all these new initiatives, which becomes extra work and extra work that they are not compensated for. Um, And often it's not the work that gets you promoted. It's not that valued work in the organization. And so they have the extra work and they have the, um, the extra emotional labor, if you will. So here is this is in the way they're being included by giving a voice and a role and participating, but it's unfair, but it's unfair because now they have more to do than everyone else. Their inputs are going to go up and their outputs are going to stay the same or maybe even go down because they're having to spend well, because they're doing work that might seem, uh, you know, countercultural and too, too aggressively. So by some parties within an organization. So that's a great instance of, uh, you know, an effort to include in a way that could readily be, you know, uh, experienced as inequitable. Yes. Wow. Yeah. So, oh, I I have so many questions just about (laughs) that. So thank you for helping us to understand the differences among those, those three terms, which again are you know, bandied about and just not really well, you know, and clearly understood. Um, Let me just remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I'm very glad you're listening to our show today. My guest today is Quinetta Robertson. She's the John A. Hanna Distinguished Professor of Management and Psychology at Michigan State University. Um, So, I, I, 
want to just spend a, a minute on what you said earlier when you were a graduate student back in the 90s your your faculty advisors were dissuading you from pursuing the topic of diversity um wow how have things changed let me put it that way <laughs> well it, if if we go back in time and look at um the field i would say the field of diversity in practice we probably started hearing about and seeing diversity initiatives in like the early 90s so that's what sparked my interest because at, in banking i was actually um able to be involved in the bank's diversity initiative and they were kind of a thought leader in that area because a lot of organizations didn't have that mm -hmm. but if you looked at the research there was no research on the topic and that's not unusual a lot of the research lags behind practice um there and was so some my good friend david thomas was uh, among those who were leading the charge and who was active but it was still nascent it was just beginning right at that and point. i will also say that taylor cox from the university of michigan was also i have to add that <laughs> a, a, a hero in in one of the early founders of the diversity scholarly yeah. movement yes thank you for mentioning taylor but if you if you looked, you know, largely in the research literature, there wasn't a lot of um, there wasn't a lot of research. There weren't a lot of scholars who were on the journal review boards, etc. And so I think what my faculty were saying is that, like, we don't know if this is a fad um, and or you may be fighting an uphill battle. So find wow. something that you could be equally as passionate about. So did you feel that to be a kind of racism that they were dissuading you from pursuing a topic that wasn't yet, uh, you know, hadn't found its moment um, because it wasn't really that important or just they're tr just trying to be helpful to you and help you advance your career in a way that was going to be, well, just more uh, amenable to your progress? I did not find that to be um, racism in any way. There was one comment to me that um, to not study it because there was it was not good to be diverse studying diverse issues. Yeah, that was I was like, mm, I you know, no one else get, is getting this feedback. Um, so if so I were to study uh, diversity, I wouldn't get the, that same comment that you would because you're an African American woman, right? And, and you. You studying it would make it more legitimate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So or that's the perception. And so I think back then. that back then. And so to your question about where are we now? Yes. I think all of that has changed where you see scholars um, across the globe studying diversity. You find it in the um, a large body of literature and it's, it's management, it's psychology, it's anthropology, it's sociology, there's diversity in a number of different literatures. But I also think that it's in the top journals, which people are likely to see that as more legitimate. Mm -hmm. um, and then a lot of the practices that we see in organizations, there's research on those specific diversity and inclusion practices. So there's more of that kind of match between research and practice. So let's get into that. Um, what you have learned from your studies and, and your understanding of the literature, how do uh, DEI initiatives 
help people and organizations in the communities they serve? What are the what are the major outcomes that you've seen so far that work? And then we'll get into some of the reasons why they fail or why mm-hmm. where they meet resistance. So we hear um, both um, scholars and practitioners say diversity increases firm performance. And we have evidence of that. But but the question is, how does that happen, right? That's quite a leap. There's a lot of things that drive firm performance. So we know that diversity increases innovation, creativity, problem solving, um, agility, environmental responsiveness. There's all these capabilities that are created. We're talking about diversity on what demographic characteristics or other characteristics? So it's, the research has primarily been on gender, race, and age. Okay. There, there's some also research on top management teams and boards that show diversity in um, functional backgrounds, in tenure, those kinds of things. So in general, there's a there's the potential for a positive relationship, I'll say, between diversity and firm performance. We do not have as much evidence of equity and performance or inclusion and performance. And what 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 do you what do you take away from that? What's what's the meaning of that um, set of again? Uh, broad observations about the research literature, that yeah. diversity seems to have a positive impact, but equity and inclusion don't. What, is, what does that mean for us? I think diversity, um, because it's approached in terms of people's group memberships or characteristics, it becomes more measurable. So um, it's easy to say, to capture diversity, where I, I remember, you can I'm sorry? More, you can count more readily the 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 numbers of people that belong to different identity groups and and therefore right where where inclusion I think you find people are still trying to measure it and conceptualize it and how do we determine what an inclusive environment is mm-hmm. um, what are the hallmarks of that mm-hmm. and equity I think is um, it's interesting and earlier on in my career I would like talk about fairness and mm-hmm. leaders didn't want to talk about it because they intuitively thought that they were fair. So if I ask leaders, like a scale from one to 10, how fair are you? They say eight. If I ask their employees, they would say five. Mm-hmm. And so here's the leaders thinking That's that they're- shocking. Is it? Just kidding. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. So that's, that's how hierarchy, you know, replicates itself, right? Right. So, so that's, you find this, you know, managers are like, we don't need to, I don't need to focus on being fair because I'm inherently fair. Mm-hmm. Um, but- but they, they're not. <laughs> right. um, so I think that's why we don't see that because th- there's also an assumption that if you talk about fairness, you're going to drum up perceptions of unfairness. Mm. Mm. Don't, don't ask people about that because it'll get them thinking about something they weren't thinking about. We, we don't want people thinking about how things might be fairer here. So let's just not address that. And yes. we're doing great. And that, you know, that's how caste systems, you know, perpetuate. That's how privilege is experienced, right? Yep. I'm, I mean, uh, I work hard. I don't know about you, is, is how someone with privilege, you know, doesn't understand how the advantages that they've had have given them a leg up on the ladder of success. Uh, so 
So, so the numbers are easy to track when you're studying diversity. It's you, inclusion and equity are just fuzzier. They're more fraught politically because who wants to talk about fairness? So the, right. Am I getting that right? Yeah. I was going to say too, I think um, one of the things that I saw is that there were, there are organizations too that are uncomfortable with the diversity and equity conversation. So they would say we do inclusion um, because it was a more palatable thing. Cause if you said diversity, people would think affirmative action. And what's the problem with that? What's, why do people react negatively to that? Uh, Cause they hear quotas. So they hear. And what's the problem with that? Um, quota when quotas were instilled as a, as an executive order, mm-hmm. it was that if you have two people who are, equally qualified, you choose the one that's underrepresented from a group that's underrepresented. And, but it was done incorrectly. There were several organizations that said, I've got to hire a member of an underrepresented group, regardless of what the, their background is. Mm. And so that's why quotas, I think, have the stigma attached to them that they do, because in terms of fairness, people don't hear the the input factor, like if mm-hmm. all else are, if all else is equal, they don't hear that. They're like, oh, I just heard I got to pick a member of this group over a member of another group. Independent of their skills, experience, background and readiness for the for the opportunity of the position. Exactly. And so that's perceived as unfair. Yes. And so there's there's backlash against that. Yes. But 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 inclusion sometimes for people is a kinder, gentler term, um, and so it they'll they'll use they'll change the terminology without necessarily doing anything meaningfully different, which is why I th- still think we're trying to understand it in organizations. So so we're our kind of starting off point uh, is that diversity research demonstrates that. Diversity is an asset on a number of different indicators of organizational effectiveness and performance. Is that correct? That is correct. And that's on, we're talking about race, gender, and age. It's good to have a mix. Yes, although the research has not explored a mix. That that aspect of intersectionality, there's a term for that where you don't just focus on one category. Right. Much of the research has examined one, the effects of one group membership. Yeah. Right. No, but I'm I'm sorry. I meant, and I oh. should have been more clear, that it's good to have an, a range of different kinds of people working together. That is correct. Um, but yeah, what it's like to be an older African-American female, where you've got both age, you know, discrimination possibly, gender discrimination possibly, and race discrimination, how those are intersectionally, you know, affecting each other. That's another matter. Yes. Um, which which we may have time to get into in the second half. Um, what what has been, you know, the, the main reasons why, if you could just summarize, why DEI initiatives fail? I think there, I'm going to say two to three reasons. Um, The first one is that aspect of measurement, the counting. Mm -hmm. That's some people, that's what, that's what diversity is to them, right? Um, 
David Thomas and Robin Ely talked about it in terms of discrimination and fairness, right? Let's just make sure we're not discriminating, make sure we're following the law. But so some people just count. Well, if you just count, that doesn't mean anything because you don't have an environment that's going to support that diversity. Eventually people leave, there's an attrition issue, you're back to square one. Um, I think the second thing is that there are some organizations that approach it very transactionally or see it as practice driven. So, so, so if I say, um, what do you do to manage diversity, equity, inclusion? Top three answers, diversity training, coaching and mentoring for women and minorities and employee resource groups. Okay. And I'm like, well, why those things? And those are usually the things that are um, hailed as best practices. Um, but of course, best practice means there, it's a best practice for that specific organization. Right, right. It's not necessarily going to work for everyone or in every context or small versus large organizations or in every industry. So we've got to be sensitive to what's going to, what's the meaningful dimensions of diversity in a particular organization and what's needed rather than just plugging and playing specific practices. Well, and those three are known. There is a kind of legitimacy about them because they, they are known uh, initiatives that have a certain, uh, you know, uh, identity or, or, you know, image in the world. You, and, and you can, you can buy most of those off the shelf sort of. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But to be, designing for change in a particular organizational setting requires considerably different kind of mentality and investment, right? In diagnosis and, and, and then figuring out what the right, right solutions are that are going to work. I'd like to turn to that question of how you embark on such a journey um, and any examples you've got of maybe a, a, a firm or two that have done it well in your opinion if if you've got some that you can tell us about uh so let's let's pick that up when we come back in just a minute all right okay okay so um short break here but don't go away when i come back we're going to be continuing the conversation with Cornetta robertson of michigan state university she's just moved there and has an exciting uh, set of opportunities uh, for impact there and also in the Academy of Management. She is the incoming president of the Academy of Management. We're going to talk about all that and more when we return. I am Stu Friedman. This is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. You're listening to Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome back to Work and Life. So glad you're here. I am your host, Stu Friedman, and my guest today is Quinetta Robertson, who is the John A. Hanna Distinguished Professor of Management and Psychology at Michigan State University. She just started that position. And uh, when we booked her for the show, she was still at Villanova University, just outside of Philadelphia, where she spent 12 years as a professor in the Department of Management and Operations. We're talking about her research in the field of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And uh, just before the break, Conetta, we were talking about uh, what derails DEI efforts, and we're going to talk about what makes them succeed. Uh, what what else have you seen in terms of uh, what what makes them go awry, or where companies may be misguided in terms of their efforts to try to make for a more 
uh, fair and inclusive and diverse workforce in order to improve their effectiveness as an organization? I think that the the additional thing that I would note is that there's sometimes um, a limit to how what the what the what is seen as the value for diversity in an organization. Mm-hmm. That you know we know there's been research. I know that um, McKinsey did a study in like 2017 mm-hmm. that showed that if you have a certain number of women. Um, in leadership or on your board or a certain number of um, racial minority members that you will have increased firm performance. And so everybody's like, you know, we've got to now get women or we've got to get minorities in our leadership or on our board. And just as a note, I had done that same study in 2006. But what I found was that, you know, of course, you can't just put people in a team or put people on a board, that it depends on how you're using that diversity. Mm-hmm. That if there's only, you know, what I found was that there needs to be a critical mass. If there's one or two people, I like to call it the we got one phenomenon because what happens is that's the person that's put on the website and in the pictures and their value becomes their group membership rather than their unique expertise that they're bringing to the organization. They become a token as it were. They become a token. Exactly. Not really valuable. Right. And, and if you look at boards, boards are even a a more special case because um, if you look at a lot of the women and or minority members on boards, they serve on multiple boards. So usually someone has to be tested first um, on other boards and someone says, oh, okay, we can go get this person. Well, there's got to be a law of diminishing returns, right? What's the competitive advantage of have some, having somebody who serves on six or seven different boards? The other thing is a lot of times the the women and, and the racial minority members are not on the board committees that are high impact. So the governance committee, the finance committee, they'll be on like the community engagement committee or the HR committee, or, you know, so it's, 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 it becomes this, it's a different form of tokenizing, if I can make it a verb. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so you, you, you're not really capturing the potential or realizing that potential of the, of diversity. So it's not, representation is not the whole game you're saying. Correct. Right. Yep. And by representation, I mean having people from different identity groups being represented in a a group of power. Right. Um, It's not, and in fact, that can be, as I understand what you're saying, kind of destructive in a pernicious way. If, if, you know, there's, it's seen as though, well, we got one. Mm -hmm. Um, When in fact, there, the, the, the ideas and perspectives that someone who comes from a different group might bring is not really heard or, uh, you know, has agency in decision-making, then it just reinforces and reifies the status quo of, uh, of exclusion. Am, exactly. am I getting it right? You are getting it exactly right. So, so what's a, what's a business to do? Based, <laughs> on, what, based on what you have learned, mm-hmm. uh, what advice do you give? And I know it's it's a big and complex issue, and every every firm is different. But where does one get started? Yeah. So so first, I think the firm has to reflect on what its value for diversity is. So so answering the statement, 
diversity is important to us because. Mm. And that can be related to the firm's values, that can be related to their business goals. But coming up, that that makes sure that the, their approach to diversity is going to be baked into strategy or what the, the work of the organization, mm. rather than this standalone, you know, practice-driven or numbers-driven thing. And so it gives you say practice driven. What do you mean? So so practice driven saying, as we were speaking, as we were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. have it saying like, we're going to put we're going to have diversity training. Well, why? Why Those practices? Oh, I see. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So that's what I well, mean because it's the right thing to do, Cornetta. Yeah. But we also I, know there's research that shows that most diversity training, there's no ROI on that. It's like you had said that, you know, you can buy those things off the shelf. I would love to see and I would I would I would um, challenge organizations to see what's the ROI on those investments, Mm -hmm. because a lot of data show us that there's not a return on training investments. Right. No, we we had Frank Dobbins on the show while yeah. back talking about his research that demonstrates that yeah. very, very persuasively. So you got to have more than just we're doing it because it's the right thing kind of sloganeering and, and really link it to uh, to to what you're trying to do as a business. Can you give us an example of like what that would look like and how you would how you would make that connection in a in a, in a genuine way? So, um I will give, um, right now I'm doing some work with private equity firms who, when we first started working, it was, it, usually the, the entry point is training, right? We, we think we want un- unconscious bias training. Mm-hmm. But I pulled back to say, what, why is that important, mm-hmm. right? What is it, what does the end story look like? At the end of that, what would you like to have seen happen? Mm-hmm. And the outcomes that they described were more about decision making that and and being able to kind of think about their portfolio, increasing the diversity of portfolio in portfolio companies, thinking about being able to manage risk better in the portfolio. So those are all kind of like informational that has nothing to do with unconscious bias. To me, if they said people are not collaborating well and they're not working together, then that could be an issue for like unconscious bias in training. Or we, we you know, we're trying to hire diversity, but we we can't find, you know, the candidates never make it through the, the process. Those kinds of things. But the things that they were talking about had nothing to do with training. It was It was something else. We need to think about how to build diversity into what to the work of the organization and so rather than talk about training we started working on more kind of um how to you know thinking about identifying diversity in um leadership thinking about where diversity is concentrated in the hierarchy of the portfolio companies? How do we make sure that they're equitable systems so people are being hired and diversity isn't concentrated in one particular area? So it was more structural than cultural. So training wasn't the solution so much as it was uh, selection uh, of, of, of portfolio companies based on their representation, uh, for example, or uh, their hiring practices and also staffing practices in terms of where people are assigned, people who are different, people of color, people 
Well, I, I, is this ma mainly about race or is it also about gender? Is it also about age or is it primarily about race that you're speaking now? Primarily race and gender, okay. um, but, but it was also about developing the competencies in the portfolio company leadership so that they know how to craft a diversity strategy. They know how to put in place um, diversity, a diversity initiative, because in a lot of those, a lot of the companies, they're very small, and so they might have a, a HR um, function of one. So how do you create uh, accountability and build and begin that DEI journey when you have limited resources? So there's got to be a reason that makes sense in terms of uh, the, 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 the primary outcomes that an organization is pursuing for the diversity efforts. And, and when you start with that is what you're saying, then, then you can figure out, well, what's the right solution, not just take off the shelf, the diversity training, the unconscious bias training, et cetera. That's it, exactly. I, and, and part of my, that being my approach may also be part of my background in finance mm -hmm. because I learned the, the with them, the what's in it for me very early on. Mm -hmm. So I know I've been in meetings where you can just see in the leadership's face, like we got somebody talking about diversity today. Right. And they, you could still, why do I have to be here? Why am I here? Let's this, it, this is a call center, mm -hmm. you know, let's get to the real business at hand. Mm -hmm. so what I do is actually start with the end story. I've usually done some due diligence on the firm mm -hmm. and I can talk about top line growth, bottom line growth. I can talk about returns, how it's going to make money, save money. And usually you can see this look on their face. Like, how does she know these words? Right? Like I'm oh. now speaking their language. Oh my God. And the fact that I back into the people story, I back into the DEI story. They're like, I've never heard it this way before. Wow. But the, but the benefit is that that also gets them to bake it into what they do and see it as part of the business rather than here's the real work and now here's diversity. Yes, that's where it must begin. Could not agree more. And no wonder, you, you know, you get more traction when you start with you know, the things that matter most to a business. If you work back from there, you, you're going you're gonna to get a lot more interest and investment and support. Uh, that's genuine and not just uh, on the surface or tokenism. Let me remind listeners, hey, you're listening to Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm Stu Friedman, and I'm glad you're listening. I hope you're enjoying our conversation with Michigan State University's Professor Quinetta Robertson. We're talking about DEI and uh, the current environment. So let's, let's go to that. You, we've got... Um, you know, the executive branch of the federal government just recently saying they're going to move diversity training out of the government. Um, let's just end that. Uh, and you got the secretary of education apparently following suit at the school level. What's going on there? Like, why, why would somebody do that? I, it's a big, complicated question. Maybe you don't have a direct answer to that, but I think it speaks to the, the sort of current social, political, cultural context in which you're trying to make change happen in the private sector. Um, how do you make sense of what's happening in the world now with respect to the support for or lack of it or actual antagonism for uh, DEI efforts in the private sector? 
I think, I mean, it's a complex issue and I think it's driven by a number of factors. Um, One could easily say that, again, like I was, I mentioned, we have little data on the return on investment from training initiatives. And so that could be something, right? Where do you, if, if, if there's a, a fiscal issue and looking to see, can we show that there's been meaningful impact? Well, you know, we know that in lean times, it's the things like leadership development and training and those kinds of things that get cut. But I think that there's something else, right? That there's, um, I saw, I was reading something that said like anything that says racism or anti-racist or there was certain terminology, mm-hmm. which makes people uncomfortable. And so it is a very privileged position to say, I'm going to get rid of things that make me feel bad. (laughs) Um, And so I do think that there's, there's not just a um, uh, outcome driven uh, driver, you know, it's not, it's not just outcome driven, or it's not just fiscally driven. There's a number of other things that are related to implicit bias. So what does that mean for you as the president, incoming president of the Academy of Management, the, the group of us, and I've been a member forever, uh, who, who study organizations and try to make them smarter? Um, how do you see what, what we ought to be doing yeah. in the months and uh, years to come on this issue? So there's, there's two things. One is that one of the things we're trying to do is we have, I mean, we have 22,000 members who are doing this really innovative, impactful research that a lot of people don't know about. So part of it is being able to get our research and research findings in the hands of people who can actually use them and make it more, you know, kind of connect to practice a bit more. Um, But then, you know, we've also had conversations that if we're going to be critical of organizations, we also have to turn a mirror on ourselves and see how diverse, equitable and inclusive we are as an academy. And so, you know, thinking about who is leading the academy and the divisions and interest groups, thinking about the, you know, the systems that everyone has a a voice and can participate, thinking about, you know, does everyone who, you know, certain, is it that senior, only senior scholars are heard, or is there, you know, there are newer scholars who are recent graduates who have really cutting edge research who need to be heard. So how can we make the academy itself more um, diverse, equitable, and inclusive? So, and when your tenure is done, uh, it will be successful if what? I, oh, that's a great question. I, I would, first of all, that I will, I will still possess my full faculties and mine. <laughs> it will not have. You will not lost. be driven mad. Yes, I will not be driven mad. Okay, that's um, a good outcome to be aspiring <laughs> for. But but I also think that that along you know we would have seen change um, internally and and externally. And part of the challenge then is putting some metrics around that. And I think that the leaders of the the divisions and interest groups, the members have been really good about holding us accountable. And so it's making sure that we can say, and I can say at the, in August of next year, that here are the things we can have some, we have some like evidence-based 
evidence of achievement or evidence of some kind of transformation or change that has happened. I want to spend the, uh, most of the rest of our time here going to your earlier studies of teams. Uh, if you could just spend a minute or so giving us the highlights of what you learned from that research on justice and diversity in, in teams for people who are on teams right now and are trying to figure out how to be smarter about um, how to make their teams both more fair and more uh, diverse in a way that adds value for the members and for the team and its, its various uh, constituents. So it, it, my research, it was interesting because when I did my initial research, the existing studies just looked at diversity among individuals, excuse me, justice among individuals. Mm -hmm. And what I found was that there was a mob mindset, if you will, Mm -hmm. but that if you treat people fairly, Mm -hmm. um, they'll talk about it and they'll go on about their work. But if you treat team unfairly, they typically will talk about it with each other they have that opportunity given their proximity to kind of talk about, you know, that was really unfair. What do you think of that? And they do some sense-making about it and it takes on a life of its own. So what happens is that that unfairness becomes even more unfair in a team context. Mm. And if you go back to our earlier conversation about managers thinking that they're naturally or inherently fair, that becomes a really slippery slope in teams. Mm -hmm. And we operate primarily in teams now in the work world. And so it's really important for leaders to be conscious about treating people, particularly teams, fairly. How do you do that? Let's say I'm a manager of a team. What can I do to make sure that people feel this is a fair Uh, social environment to be operating in and contributing to? So at the very least, there needs to be fair process, meaning um, as we are, as I'm making decisions, as I'm going through the work, I've got to make sure that I'm using, you know, reliable information or accurate information, that I'm treating people consistently, that I'm not just playing bias or favoritism, that I'm giving people voice and allowing them to participate. But then, and this may, it's not rocket science, but I do have to treat people interpersonally fairly. Treating people with respect, giving them information, being authentic with them. Even if there's a situation where that I, I don't have all the information or I don't know, I can say, I don't know, right? Or I'll go get that information for you. But you have a lot of situations, particularly now when, you know, we've all had that, that manager who said, ah, I tried to fight for you, but, you know, my hands were tied or, you know, there was conversation that went on. I can't really share it with you. And what that shows is a lack of trust. Mm -hmm. And so it's important to kind of have to establish that relationship, because as an employee, I know that if we if I trust you, if you treat me with respect, if I believe that there was a fair process, even though I didn't like the outcome or it was an unexpected outcome, Mm -hmm. I trust that you did what you could. 
I trust that you used, you know, you, you, um, you, you tried your best to be fair and you were fair. That's, that's a tall order for lots of people, of course, right? What you're asking for is, you know, basic humanity <laughs> uh, under pressure and in often in social and cultural contexts that are antagonistic to the ideals that you are so eloquently describing here. So how do you, how do you advise people who want to learn more about fairness and uh, you know, process fairness, especially so that people feel like, okay, at least if I'm getting, you know, if I'm getting hurt, at least I understand why. And it makes sense to me. There's some reason uh, that, you know, information is available. Do you have a, a preferred method for people to start to become more uh, skilled in this, in this way? So it's interesting. I find it fascinating that you said, you know, like, it's a tall order, particularly in this environment, Mm -hmm. because it's usually in times of crisis when things go haywire. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's important for leaders to practice and exercise their fairness muscle when things are good or when things are quiet, right? Mm -hmm. That's the time to kind of build that so that when things go haywire, we're not trying to scramble and, and, and there's not that space for the the crazy to seep in. I think at, you know, the, the golden rule, you know, treat others as you would like to be treated often works really well, not only in terms of fairness, but in thinking about diversity, because there's this whole issue of perspective taking, right? Would I treat you the same way if you were a friend of mine? Would I, or or family member, would I want somebody to do that to me? So just that quick, and to me, that's like, that's a quick, like, leader hack where, and, and if I'm, if I'm doing work on unconscious bias, that's one of the things I tell people to do, just like reframe your perspective. And it doesn't take, it's not labor intensive. It doesn't take time out, but what it gets you to do is at least stop and think, and it moves the, it helps us to debias our decision-making. That's a great place for us to conclude. Uh, Gunetta Robertson, uh, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. Uh, where's the best place for listeners to find out more about you and your remarkable work? They can find me at Michigan State University. <laughs> okay, go blue. And and I, I'm I'm pretty sure I could say this without a without any um, doubt that I'm the only Quinetta there. So. <laughs> All right, Quinetta, thank you so much. It's been great. Thank you. This has been great. All right. And thank you for listening. Don't forget to tune in next week at 5 p.m. Eastern. If you want to write to me about something you heard on the show today or anytime, just write to me, friedmanatwharton.upenn.edu, or you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, And you can write to our station at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Don't forget to visit TotalLeadership.org if you want to find out more about all the cool stuff we've got there for you to use and learn from and to apply in your life and your organizations to make things a bit more harmonious. We need it now. Thanks, Patty Hall, for producing the show today. Dion Simpkins, our sound engineer. I am Stu Friedman. You've been listening to Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.